Welcome to uh, Biota Podcast. It has been a while since the last one, but I do want to start recording these things more periodically. And when I put out the call to the community associated with folks who wanted to uh, to be recorded, the first person to come up was Eric Burton. Hello, Eric. Hi, Tom. So in terms of, uh, I can't even really think how long it's been since you were last on a Biota Podcast. It may be about two years. Where are things with Critadrug currently? Well, it's come a long way. I've... Uh... I've just recently started doing hill climbing in there. I, I tampered our test world that had a little ziggurat in the middle so that the steps were very flat because I had an evolved species that could locomote but couldn't climb anything. And I gave them a long time just circling these steps when they were too big. They would hug the first step looking for food that was up on it because most of the food fell on the on the steps to make the higher ground more valuable. And uh, I flattened the steps so they lost this inner interior wall they were following and had to learn that now they could uh, slip up onto the steps and actually get up to where the food is, which after maybe a thousand generations they've started to do. And uh, I've been writing a document about the circuits of consciousness, uh, Tim Leary, Robert Anton Wilson model, and how it applies to electronic life. And uh, I pointed out in there that the oral bio-survival circuit, circuit one, already exists in machines. We might have primitive consciousnesses in these animals that can orient themselves towards food and away from danger. But uh, this is my first opportunity to evolve a circuit two consciousness, which is territorial and will contest for higher ground and understand that some territory is more valuable than others, which with uniformly random food drops on a flat world was not the case. So I'm trying to bring that out right now. But uh, I've been working with my grid evolver lately instead and tampering the energy values and temperatures in it because it used to make the most beautiful bio- biological art. And I uh, changed it since it did that. I fixed some bugs which might have been responsible for what I was seeing and I can't get it to do the same thing anymore. So I'm uh, working on it now. So that's interesting. The bugs were actually critical in order for it to create the beautiful art. Oh, it was like spots like on frog skin and fire and clouds and water and tissue with like tears in it that looking down to a rougher epidermis. And uh, I would see fields of swimming sperm like their tails were wagging, but the camera was like chasing them because they were swimming in place and the background would be scrolling past. It was mm-hmm. just insane to see from a grid evolver, just a CA on a grid, you know, you so- can make. You can make these so big now with really rich dynamics, and I made it as fast as I could from stuff I learned about demo coding and assembly mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, avoiding multiplies and divides and using so, powers yeah. of two where I needed to so I could do bit shifts and stuff. And I made, there's not configurable, CAGA, my grid evolver has no command line arguments or options because I wanted to do as few memory accesses as possible so most of the variables are constants so that they'll be rendered as immediates and it can just fly. So let's take a couple of steps back because the idea of uh, adding difficulty to reach food and the emergence of intelligence from this really came from I guess the discussion that uh, we had with Roy Plotnick. I don't think you were involved with that discussion maybe now five years ago associated with the pre-Cambrian explosion and what actually led into that. And he commented that the emergence of intelligence really did come from kind of irking out feeding grounds with some degree of difficulty. So I think the biology is there as well. And certainly, you know, as artificial life developers, we see this pretty uh, pretty continuously that if you create this these feeding grounds and establish some difficulty, you will see the emergence of 
Um, what can be seen as biologically inspired intelligence, but oftentimes is taking it in a variety of different directions. I think when we last talked to you, you were talking a bit about shared consciousness and uh, like psychedelic effects on shared consciousness and a variety of other things along that route. Have you done any development of that in the past couple of years? One thing I changed in the morphic fields was they were only communicating neuron potentials before, which meant a neuron that fired every frame might only show a low potential or a zero potential and might not get mapped. A neuron that stays at a high potential would be highly morphically active, but then neurons that were firing every frame were not. So I put in a morphic effect from a firing neuron as well as transmitting potential that way so that really actively firing neurons would be more morphically potent. Um, I haven't changed a whole lot else. Like the, uh, the shared grid, the psychic grid, it's good, but it slowed Critterding way down. I mean, there are 9,000 possible sensors on that screen. I managed to get it down to just 300 motors to write to the whole thing because I condensed the, the uh, different color channels that they use. They pick a crayon instead that went to one-sixth of the motors to co- cover the screen because there are six color channels. And then I was able to uh, allow them to offset their rights, left, right, up, or down, and that reduced it by something like an eighth, I believe. So I got a sixth and an eighth. So it's like a 48th as many motors. It's 300 instead of like 9,000 or something. But uh, there are still 9,000 sensors to read the whole psychic screen. And even if the brain doesn't have connections to all these sensors, I still load them for every animal, every frame. And I can't think of a better way to do that. Like maybe if they had less than half of the sensors on the screen connected to their brain, then I could use a list of which ones they do have connected and only load those ones. But I don't see that being uh, faster. It would be slower when they had every one connected. There'd be no reason to use a list. So I would have to not use a list behavior if they had more than a certain percentage uh, connected and profile it. But I might have broken something in Critterding because I took out the telepathic canvas with the need to load all the sensors. I just left in the morphic fields for another version that scans networks. I put in... uh, an IP address field they could see and uh, scroll the bytes in the IP and the port up and down, and they could clock in a probe string up to 255 bytes, and I would show them on their sensors the response from the service at the host on that port, if there was one. Um, And it's still much slower than Critterding. And I remember when I was going through the code, I think I made something static that wasn't, or I made it not static because I thought I had to. I was learning C++ as I went. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out now what I broke to have (laughs) made it a quarter the speed of Critterding. Like something is wrong. But I'd like to say about intelligence, what you're saying about intelligence evolving it, yeah, I think that all the time because I'm trying to evolve AI. The world has to have features... um, that will reward rudimentary implementations of intelligence for it to appear. And certainly, contesting for territory is one of those, like how am I going to get past this guy or should I fight him? And that kind of thing involves assessments of his health and uh, whether or not he's seen you yet and stuff that should require intelligence. Uh, That was a big reason I added the drugs to the world. The only things I had to deal with before was food and each other. With the drugs, they have to distinguish between food and drugs. They can move the drugs out of their food diet and hopefully ultimately into a drug diet, into a ritual diet of some kind, which I've said before would just be amazing to see. And having to choose between the drugs, I mean, they could evolve 
an intuitive, a biological sense of what each drug does based on its color. Or it might be simpler, more likely for them to evolve a simple learning faculty that reminds them what a drug did after they've tried it based on the color it is. Uh, so I'm really hoping that appears, that I get more intelligence. Uh, one of the most encouraging evolutions I had recently was I took the edge off the world and I left them to, uh, mm. yeah, I left them to try not to fall off for a while, which killed them all for a long time. But uh, what I was seeing was when they got to the edge and they saw the floor um, approach and disappear on their visual field, I would see behaviors like traces or vestiges of behaviors that wouldn't save their life. And I couldn't figure out how they evolved these, these non-life-saving behaviors that emerged near the edge of the world because I couldn't figure out what critter's life that behavior had ever saved for them to have gone on to breed and pass it on to their children, you know? But uh, ultimately, I added particle systems. So when they bit each other, blood would fly up, and they evolved in the presence of that for a while. And then I got this brainwave that when one falls off the world, I would uh, I copy their domain state over to one called EDDMS, their default motion state, rather, the Evil Dead default motion state, because uh, it's an effect from the Evil Dead and Army of Darkness movies. Now, when they fall off the world, I produce a fountain of blood it's a uh, it's a murder fountain and the idea was that this should have a psychological effect on them like when they see the blood spraying up from the edge after seeing a critter fall off it it's like what they see when they fight and they should realize that's bad and fascinatingly i mean a psychological impact on the living creatures should not have impacted their evolution but only after adding the blood fountain uh did i get behaviors that successfully avoided the edge of the world now when these neural nets, these robots, they re reach the uh, edge, edge of the world, I call them animals, they're electronic animals, they'll stop, they'll pause, and sometimes they sit and worship there for a while, not mm -hmm. sure what to do. They're just reflecting, clearly. Yeah, it's strange, because normally their visual field never goes blank, and it, um, there's an option in the brain view to blank out their visual field, and you normally see them stop then, so it might just be that they're not stimulated into motion anymore but normally when they see the edge of the world approaching they stop and turn on a dime uh i mean people didn't even seem to know if neural nets could perform ordered sequences of action for locomotion etc and we've certainly shown they can do that but the way they drive around they i mean they used to drive right off the edge of the world they actually um stop moving forward and turn on a dime when they reach the edge of the world until they're no longer facing it and then they continue which i was so impressed to see and uh normally it's a right turn but then i've seen them take a hard left too at the edge of the world which seems to imply to me a basic spatial sense the notion that turning left or right there is equivalent um i've even seen them pass a piece of food and uh, recover it, like commence a capture of food that has left their visual field, which seemed to me that perhaps after 8,000 generations, in these tiny neural nets, they removed neurons preferentially till they had just over 100, and I rebalanced their uh, mutable mutation settings with Perl because I didn't think they would bump it back up to add neurons more often before, like in a few enough generations to avoid losing so many neurons that they couldn't breed anymore. Anyway, I, I just re rebalanced it and went into the critter files. At any rate, they, uh, they, seem, they seem to have a perimeter sense. So when a piece of food passes them on the left, it's like as they're moving on, they're going, now it's at 11 o'clock, now it's at 10 o'clock, now it's at 9 o'clock. 
And to see something like that appear in a neural net of like 100 plus neurons uh, is just astonishing if that's what I'm seeing, you know? It's an interesting problem. I'm, I mean, one of the reasons there haven't been such a frequency of, of biota recordings in recent months is that I'm writing a, a chapter for a, a Liz Swan book called Origin of Mind. And the thing that strikes me, last year I wrote a couple of chapters as well. The quality of reviewers that you get, I mean, the Springer book, so you get quite interesting academic reviewers, but they typically don't have a legacy understanding of the artificial life community, and they certainly don't appreciate that the kind of things that you're discussing and the kind of stuff that I experienced with Noble Ape is just so much more advanced than artificial life was a decade ago. So they come to the field with a kind of preconceived notion of I don't know, maybe Tierra or um, simple cellular automata or, you know, maybe basic fram sticks or something like that. And they don't really get a sense that through modern computation and the length of time that we develop these programs, we add the kind of complexity that you describe so eloquently associated with your own experimentation. And for someone just coming to this conversation now, they're, I don't know, they're natural, I don't know what, what element it is of their own thinking, but certainly from the academic community, it is very difficult to inject the contemporary artificial life narrative in without, um, I don't know, substantial outreach demonstrations. Um, I did a talk recently and there was a fellow who came up at the end who had a background in neural networks at least, so I could at least jam with him for half an hour and kind of fill the connective dots. But when you're just talking to a general academic community that aren't part of this simulation uh, environment, and I think a lot of what you're describing comes very intimately as from a simulator's perspective. It's something that you can only get when you run these simulations and spend you know, hours looking at them and contemplating and then perhaps there's an element of, I don't know, bugs seen as anthropomorphism or something like that. But I think the thing that strikes me about this discussion is that we are increasingly creating a path which you need to walk along the path in order to get to the point of actually having this discussion. When you talk to, to folks, um, and I think probably crediting has been pretty successful in terms of actually getting folks contributing into the uh, development how do you frame what artificial life is for you in the context of someone who may not have ever experienced anything close to what you describe? And how do you deal with the, I don't know, the doubt element in your explanations? Yeah, it's really strange. The resistance I find going to different technology communities and especially the hacker community, which I've always been at least orthogonal to, I, I try to bring these evolution technologies to them. And uh, they seem not to care, not to be interested. They certainly don't take it up. And uh, when I've gone out and done like some outreach to try to get cr people to try Critter Drug, uh, normally people don't seem to get the point within the first few minutes. They are not sure what they're looking at and what it's going to do. And that's really too bad because I think I, I say to people, oh, when this uh, is enough to bug me, I say, well, in 10 years, you're going to be working with evolution labs instead of writing code and you'll wish you'd started 10 years ago because I really believe bio-inspired software is the future. Um, just think anywhere that you have a hard-coded behavior in software, it's going to perform that hard-coded behavior rigidly and inflexibly and without intelligence and if it can't do it, it stops, it breaks. If anything goes wrong, it, it stops and uh, you could replace every hard-coded behavior in almost any piece of software with a test for that behavior instead, a contest, and, and let candidate organisms 
uh, try to do it better and better than one another until you have a resilient bio-inspired controller that does the same thing that the original hard-coded piece of software did, but now it does it. It wants to do it now. It is thinking about how to do it, and if it encounters obstacles, it can employ at least instinct and possibly creativity and problem-solving even to, uh, do, to do it anyway. I keep saying these are homing devices I have, at the very least, the species I have that respond acutely to sight, like the 6600 generation foodotropes that are available for Windows users for whom I haven't flattened the hill yet on the website, respond to eyesight really acutely. I said, just consider having a logical controller flying, say, an ICBM or a drone, for God's sake, military technology, <laughs> like cosmic rays causing bit flipping in a logical system would bring it down. Mechanical stresses causing component failure, overheating, would bring it down. Whereas if you evolved a homing neural net, then you implemented it in hardware and had it guiding your missiles, it could have bit flipping. You can flip a lot of bits in a neural net without uh, changing what it's doing at all. It just keeps going. And then if it has component loss or uh, it's eaten something bad, consider, uh, sorry, it would be like it's eaten something bad even if it was overheating or something, because in critter drug, they're evolving in the presence of things that aren't food, that actually change their state of mind and change their, their neurochemistry. And uh, they have to evolve to uh, forage anyway, no matter what drugs, how many drugs they just stumbled on. The more adaptive they are in the face of radical mind alteration, the better they'll do in the simulation. So... Yeah, um, then if your resilient, bio-inspired, hardware-based neural net homing controller was to overheat, it could very much be like it had just taken a tranquilizer or a psychedelic or something, and it would still be trying to perform its task. It c could hardly be brought down by anything. Um, I think the military must be working on optimization and evolution technology, probably in perfect secrecy, and that's why we don't hear about it. I think also pharmaceutical corporations are doing the same thing as well, and we've encountered that very briefly on some of the early biota lives um, from a fellow who called in from Eli Lilly. I mean, my sense is that this technology... And, I mean, to speak to your point, my experience now, particularly returning to the Bay Area and returning to the Bay Area with a, a solid mandate that the technology within Noble Ape could actually... Well, what had happened previously with Apple and Intel was that they'd taken elements of the technology without me being a part of it more kind of remotely. And now I'm actually back in the Bay Area. I'm able to do the evangelism that is needed on the ground. I think it's going to happen an engineer at a time. I think it's going to happen, you know, a VP or a CTO at a time. Um, and it's interesting, in fact, that uh, software has become one of the most uh, kind of conservative technologies in terms of actually adopting these relatively fundamental elements that we've certainly been playing with for at least 15 years. Uh, but I think it, I'm, as, as you are, I am optimistic about the next decade. And certainly I now feel very much that um, this is my you know, role to play, uh, at least in this part of the world. And apologies for folks if Biota podcasts aren't recorded uh, in the interim through this uh, kind of continued evolution. But I think it's astonishing to me the number of companies here in, in, in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, who aren't using these kind of technologies who could be saving themselves small fortunes and actually developing far better software uh, in, the, in the long run. And I think, 
that kind of demonstration requires a certain degree of intimacy. You actually need to either go into these companies or give talks where these companies' engineers attend. You need to give them demonstrable applications and you need to show them uh, the aspects of their education that unfortunately seems to be lacking. I mean, it strikes me as extraordinary that genetic programming as a concept is still not taught to every engineer that goes through a basic degree. I mean, I think these these elements are, are solution spaces that need to be actively explained, which is still a curious phenomena. But I agree with you. I think there are probably, uh, and this is what in- is interesting to me about, I'm the chair of the industry outreach group of the International Society of Artificial Life. And I think the thing that interests me is actually actively identifying the industries that are doing this kind of work and then reintroducing it into the software community, which seems quite curious, but unfortunately, the nature of the way things are currently. So in terms of your area, we've had a kind of periodic discussion of your experiences going out and evangelizing this kind of technology to, you know, folks in your area. Have you have you found a local community that is embracing some element of this? Or are you primarily still uh, active online in terms of your gathering the like-minded folks, so to speak. Yeah, I do most of my evangelizing online. They uh, were going to start a Toronto Grey Thumb. I was talking to a student here about it, but it didn't end up happening, which is too bad. I think Grey Thumb is a fascinating club. Um, it's really fun and fascinating, practicing evolution. is totally nature-headed. It lets you have an experience that probably only superpowered aliens who are guiding the evolution of biology on some other planet would ever have. It's, uh, it's Gaiac, it's dryadic, it, uh, it's almost spiritual, and uh, it takes a certain, a certain willingness to mesh with that mode, I think, to tend to simulation and to uh, really get the 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 glamour, the attraction of working with this kind of software. I mean, I find I don't really believe in evolving logical controllers because logical controllers are inherently brittle and silly, but I find making them made up machine codes and reading these DNAs in different ways, putting in strange features like reversing the program flow or uh, interpreting operands as well like as if they were opcodes, interpreting the operand and the next opcode as if it were an opcode op and an operand and forcing the DNA to uh, be readable two ways and this kind of thing is just so much fun. It, there's so many bizarre experiments you can run. It's really good. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, I, I wanted to say about companies taking this stuff up and about the government maybe working on this stuff. When I got slash dotted, I had access to my web host's access logs and two-thirds of the U.S. national labs had hit the front page for Critter Drug. Uh, Oak Ridges, Lawrence Livermore, Sandia, as well as NASA Ames and Langley at NASA. And uh, it had memory leaks back then. So, I mean, if they tried it on a supercomputer, it probably brought it to its knees. I was fascinated to think that institutions like that or even just someone at such a place, you know, would have visited and uh, potentially tried my software. That That's a major, uh, I, well, I've called it before a major meme vectoring. I was so happy when I got slashed. <laughs> it was twice in 2010, I think. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, when we talk about community, certainly recently, aside from these various outreach programs that we've both discussed, uh, I've been recorded with Bruce Damer on uh, the Psychedelic Salon. And the psychedelic community has always been relatively sympathetic and interested in the artificial life community. I talked with uh, Douglas Rushkoff maybe a year ago now, um, I think it was June last year, 
and he said that he always saw the two mapping on each other due to uh, a kind of sympathy for possible worlds um, that exists in both communities. My own experience with basic outreach into that community uh, has been relatively successful as well with the view that they are sympathetic to intellectually diverse rapping sessions, which oftentimes occurs when uh, Bruce Damer and I talk anyway. But it's certainly something that I've thought about. My plan was to attend Burning Man this year. However, there's some fiasco associated with the tickets. And I'm trying to prompt Bruce to fulfill his long-term promise of actually conducting uh, conversations at his property uh, because he has quite a nice speaking area that could easily be mic'd, uh, maybe through the late summer, uh, early fall uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, because I think, I mean, now I'm 20 minutes away from his farm. Um, it's a lot easier for me to pop up and maybe set up a tent or some mics or even participate in a conversation. Uh, and I think we could probably get people through and start fueling the community that was supposed to be started through Burning Man discussions. I know Bruce has done some framed conversations associated with 2012 and Terence McKenna, but I think that's certainly another community that I'm interested in doing some outreach in because it is a diverse community and strangely very solidly academically sympathetic community in some regard. Returning to what you see in the future, potentially. What I'm trying to do with Noble Lake currently is get more people involved. I've had Bob Bottram contributing source code for more than two years now, and he's basically working on it full-time. And that has been a, just an amazing experience, because this is something I've been developing for 15 years now, but to have someone who's an industrial roboticist contribute so closely has just been absolutely... I mean, I can't map words onto it in terms of an experience. But what it's made me realise is that the intellectual capacity of, well, a wide variety of folk that could be contributing to something like Noble Ape and certainly uh, who have been contributing to Cricketing requires a certain amount of evangelism and outreach. Have you thought about how to do that with Drug? And can you talk a little bit about... What what it would be like, for example, to have someone from, um, you know, someone from the defense community or, uh, you know, NASA Ames or something like that, actively contributing to the source code, maybe offering supercomputing resources, these kind of things. I mean, do you see that kind of stuff happening in the future? And have you thought about how you can actually connect these things from where you are currently? I hope so. I think this stuff is of the future. So uh, anything could happen in the in the time that's that's coming, it's uh, hard for me. For some reason, I forget things quickly lately. I even had a breakthrough on my simulator a year or two ago where I was so excited, I wanted to put it in right away. And no idea had made me excited enough to implement it right away in over a year. I was so stoked. I was so stoked. It changed how I looked at my project so much that I actually, as a thought experiment for fun, tried to remember how I saw things before I had this idea. And in doing this, I forgot what the idea was, like which has tortured me ever since. Mm. I just, I just am forgetting things, and it's rotten. I'm not into book learning like Tesla. I rely on inventor's intuition, and I believe that if I just work at it, solutions will come to me and innovations. And I forget even what it did. If they would have evolved faster, had fewer bad mutants, or. Uh, it sounds even more profound than that, though. I mean, what you seem to be describing is probably more profound than that. Whatever it was was serious, and I just forgot it. It went away. It was electronic dissolution of memory, man. It was evil, but... Uh... <laughs> I think we've all been there at one stage or another, and many of us keep pieces of paper or you know, tra train ourselves in thought experiments to actually avoid forgetting. But, yeah, you do forget occasionally, and unfortunately it's just the... 
you know, the nature of the pursuit. But returning to this idea of where you are currently and the potential in the future. Getting code from people, a guy on the AGI list, for instance, sent me a version of my code base that I should have switched to if he was right that he had parallelized it effectively. He said he had made it multi-core, and I wasn't in a position to test it. Um, I had access to a two-core machine where I was, but I, uh, I was not at home, and I didn't have the time to try it there. I would have had to port it to Windows and try it that way. And, uh, oh, I've got to, I should have worked on his code base to add all my future features to because now it's no longer the current version. I've got to find out uh, what he did to parallelize it because Bobkey has added threads and threading to Critterding since I forked it. And again, I wish I had forked it after Bobkey had parallelized it. But uh, uh, Alan Grimes's code might be the solution for me rather than writing my own, my own threading implementation. And I've got to go get it. Uh, it would be absolutely amazing if, uh, if some institution with some resources took an interest in my software in uh, developing it, not on their own, but uh, in and for the community. And uh, I mean... God, uh, look what happened to Linux when IBM started developing for it. That was a major uh, stamp of legitimacy and uh, a stepping stone for the Linux operating system, the Linux program. I really believe that my simulator, of all the simulations out there, all the A-Life programs, is one of the most likely, among the most likely, to give rise to consciousness, varying levels of consciousness, and intelligence. And I really believe that... uh, the people now who are banging their head off of software models of how the mind works um, are barking up the wrong tree. I think that real AI will be grown or born, not built. And uh, that's another community where I encounter resistance. I said technology communities, I'm having trouble getting them into this technology. And I just keep repeating to the artificial general intelligence people that they ought to be working with evolution. And it's not what I see. Everyone there is... uh, designing things uh, just consistently, intractably, I don't understand. It's testified. I mean, yes, I think everything that you've said is exactly my, my view as well. It is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, certainly working with companies now and this whole notion of what open source is, there seems to be almost a kind of criticality which is almost impossible to predict and has a wide variety of kind of scopes associated with initial perceived benefit, initial perceived effort, and these kind of things that get um, corporations fundamentally involved with with open source projects. And certainly that's been my experience with Noble Ape. But I think to have uh, government involvement is a different process. Just following my uh, talk a couple of years ago at uh, Stanford Research, Oshiyadka approached me about basically writing grant funding proposals pretty well cyclically uh, for no blape uh, in, I guess, the defense community. And I wrote one of them and then realized that the kind of productive benefit of this, I mean, I probably could have automated some aspect of the process, but it was just taking me away from the fun aspects that I enjoyed and actually doing the development. And you too, from you know our numerous conversations, clearly understand that if this wasn't exciting to you on a number of levels intellectually, you wouldn't continue to pursue these, you know, these kind of simulations or, or critter drugs specifically. And I think that's the interesting part of the problem, that if you wait passively uh, for these organisations to take an interest, you run the risk of them ever actually taking an interest. The way that they operate 
is very much based on, well, communities of kind of shared meeting spaces, which has been certainly Bruce Damer's experience. And if you're not actively at those conferences or actively publishing or actively writing grant proposals, it is very much, uh, I guess, what the artificial life community was a decade ago, and the academic artificial life community at least, that they'd never discovered Google, they'd never gone out and found, or certainly a large number had those that were uh, being published at the time. And they'd completely lost track of the hobbyist community, aside from various f- folks such as Larry Yeager and these kind of folk who even then didn't have the necessary mapping into the broader community. So, yes, it's an interesting problem how one actually, and maybe Slashdot is part of that. Maybe uh, there are folks who are, uh, you know, are actively following your work or at least passively doing so without communicating it with you. One thing that I do with Noble 8, particularly when I get these kind of esoteric code contributions, is I'll always put them into version control. Uh, so I have a, a relatively interesting kind of contribution directory. Uh, Bob Bottrom is contributing actively, but I have a kind of legacy archive, which means if I want to go back to maybe the third or the fourth generation of an Intel dump, for example, I'll always have it there because, as you describe, I too am a kind of uh, processing a transient in terms of having a variety of different computers at any given time. Uh, and these kind of source code repositories are very beneficial if nothing more, to remind oneself occasionally uh, of prior contributions. For folks who who still subscribe to the podcast who haven't walked off in disgust from the lack of audio contribution in recent months, what more would you like to see from the community? For one thing, I would like more uh, more A-Life development. I mean, uh, it's always fascinating to have toys like Swimbots or uh, Fram Sticks even uh, just to just to mess with and see what comes out of them. Making these A-Life sims is a lot of fun, and people should try it, because uh, when you're dealing with a black box solution, like you are in an A-Life sim, you're constantly finding, as you add features, that you don't have to write as much code as you had planned on writing. At some point, the plumbing disappears into the black box, where the controller is going to be evolved, and... Uh, it's actually very easy. All you're providing is an interface and an interface to the controllers and a world for them to exist in. And it's a, it's a highly creative task. I, I think it would be good to see more of uh, like Jeffrey Ventrella's labors of love. His Earth Day CA gave me the idea for a self-mutating fitness function that I'm using in CAGA, which incidentally, I think if, if you, someone finds that and grabs Revision 2 off the webpage, which still has bugs, that might have been the version that was making the uh, unthinkable displays I was seeing before. If it gets out two or 3,000 generations, it might still do that. I'm not sure. I'm just working on getting the new bug-free versions to do that. I'm mostly seeing stripes. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? I guess the question was, and you've, you've answered some of that, and I want to kind of pepper my own thing in there. It was what more you'd like to see from the community. But I've been spending a bit of time on SourceForge recently as part of this kind of active evangelism project to get more developers and folks involved with Nobelape. And the thing that struck me is that I have literally half a dozen open source artificial life projects on SourceForge currently of which I don't have the time to maintain all but one. I mean, Nobelape is, is my primary project. But I have, for example, Symmetry. I took Steve Grand's uh, previous game development and put it online open source. I have Jeffrey Ventrella's Melody Ball that Jeffrey Ventrella is thankfully maintaining but would you know benefit from active contribution. I have an early artificial life toy 
that I actually developed with a startup in 2000, uh, which again is on SourceForge and looking for active contributions, active interested parties. I also have Chemical Automata, which was the alternative EvoGrid simulation that I proposed to Bruce Damer. I wrote over a week's time uh, a basic simulation to explain the proof concept of that, that as well as on SourceForge. So I found myself in a kind of Johnny Appleseed <laughs> artificial life developer element that when I do think of these ideas that I don't have the time to contribute, I make sure that I put them up in some kind of abstract source code form with the view and the brief hope that other folk out there will uh, will come to them rather than reinventing the wheel. And I think part of that is doing an active discussion associated with these things. And certainly Symmetry, I put out there, uh, the chemical automata one, I uh, didn't talk about as heavily um, through the podcast. But I guess what I'm saying is that I think we have a small number of folk who are active artificial life developers and they are contributing all these points, seed drops, basically, for other folk to come and discover them. But part of it is also that a lot of the community comes to the experience through creating their own unique projects. And certainly you've you've adapted from crediting but you've also basically made Critter Drug your own, fundamentally. And have you thought about moving Critter Drug back into the Critterding source tree? Have you thought about doing that, or is it sufficiently moved along that it could never be reintegrated? Well, happily, uh, Bob Key didn't uh, want my features when they appeared. Um, I added drugs and telepathy and morphic fields at the same time and made telepathic Critter Drug. And honestly, I felt like uh, this was uh, like over-featuring a desirable mod uh, as a uh, as a uh, it was meant to be a wart, sort of. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you wanted to drug uh, electronic animals, but if you wanted to, you needed to also give them a telepathic canvas on which to paint and a morphic field interconnecting their brains. Um, I didn't supply the features separately, which maybe if I had just added the drugs, maybe Bob Key would have put them in, and then I could have put in the telepathic canvas separately. But when he saw what I had done to his program altogether, he uh, wasn't interested in backporting the features to his. However, Critterding 2 is coming out, which will have textures and smooth hills and uh, different kinds of objects and stuff in it. It's based on a racing game of his called Stunt Career, Mm. which... uh, which means that right now there are cars and roads and stuff in it. So it's completely unlike the original. Yes, it's a step up. And uh, he talked about putting in a telepathic interconnect for those animals, maybe using my psychic canvas in Critterding 2, which is great. And if he's going to do that, hopefully I can talk to him about the advantages of having drugs in there too. Like He probably thinks that's too druggy an idea. Uh, making it seem kind of silly. Obviously, there's a lot of lies and a lot of ridicules about drugs in our society. I mean, we're not allowed the psychedelics because they are mind-expanding, and now the government has even engineered an amphetamine shortage. People can't get their Adderall because they despise a hyper-focused population. Unless it's through caffeine or nicotine. Yes, absolutely. Unless. It's such a more rich world, having these things. For one thing, I always wondered if they could communicate in Critterding what they would even talk about, like how long it took to get the last piece of food or something. And uh, with the drugs in their world, drug experiences for me have been such a rich touchstone. Uh, They go so deep and I can just say so much about the things that have happened to me on psychedelics 
that it occurred to me, even in such a simple world, putting in some, some substances that would cause changes to their state of mind and their perception, richens that world immeasurably, really without adding uh, too many new dimensions to evolve along. It gives them something rich and complex to communicate about. So when you come to communication, because certainly this has been uh, my experience with Noble Ape over the past two years and a large portion of Bob Mottram's contribution, Bob basically engineered, very similar to the early um, Core or Avida, a genetic programming language that the Noble Apes now communicate in and also have a kind of internal dialogue using as well. It has a, both a, an external communication function and also an internal communication function. I would certainly, I mean, encourage you to have a look at that code and, and pick it up if it's useful to you because it enables a wide variety. I mean, things like social dance can evolve out of that, a wide variety of strange style and cultural elements that you wouldn't necessarily think would come through external language, but you may think comes through internal language. And it's relatively trivial to port over. You just basically plug in your sensors and your actuators, and it has a a mathematical uh, component to it as well. But um, I'd certainly, you know, if if you're considering adding language to Critter Drag in the near future, um, I can pass you that code and give you various pointers. And I know Bob would be interested in assisting your porting with it as well. Because for me, uh, it was a really interesting breakthrough in Noble Ape based on not just having underlying fear-desire elements, but actually having quite a rich... Um, I hate using the term mimetic, but a rich mimetic space that the noble apes can uh, can work with. So, I mean, if it sounds of interest to you, please consider picking up the source code for that and at least experimenting with it for your own use. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I think often that I'd like to have these creatures producing language. Um, it would be so interesting. And I've done a little text string evolver before that used a seven-instruction uh, programming language to write out strings and I just scored them on how many of the characters of the target string appeared and it works really well and sometimes I mean one time I saw one create the string skniez s-k-n-y-e-e-z which I've taken now to repeating whenever someone says skynet when I'm discussing evolution technology and AI the word skynet comes up all the time my retort is skniez because (laughs) (laughs) an an evolved life form said that to me very good, very good. It sounds like you're in a, a really good place currently for your own development, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, what comes out over the next six months to a year. Yes, hopefully I get more done. It's mostly just been bug fixes in the last couple releases of Critter Drug, really minor bugs, and the Windows version hasn't even caught up to those, so those minor bugs are back for Windows users. But uh, as soon as I can get somewhere to report it to Windows and catch it up, I will, and hopefully I get some serious work done. I mean, I have a lot of good ideas for strange things to implement still that, are, that I still have, that I wrote down and uh, want to put in. If I could show them the psychic canvas on an in-world object, like a big movie screen or something, it would let them match the color channels they see psychically to the ones they see physically. And uh, I've also considered a scheme where I have some kind of a contiguous spectrum and each color is represented by a unique potential change or something like this, to simulate wavelengths in their world so that the colors have some uh, commonality between the two places they occur. Have you considered putting these these illustrations and notes together in a kind of sketchbook form? Oh, not so much. They're sort of scattered about, mostly in files that come with the Critter Drug distribution called things like uh, Telepathic Critter Drug To-Do and Notes About This. But uh, 
yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I get uh, some something that excites me enough to put it in again soon and uh, and continue to develop that. But at this point, with Critter Ding Two so close, um, I'm also really interested in waiting for it to come out and seeing how many of my features I can get into it, or whether uh, I'm going to have to fork Critter Ding Two and move to a sort of rewritten code base based on it because I'm going to want most of the features he introduces. What happens to crediting one? Is that still maintained? It will be disused. The last release was 12.1. It's one or two years old. Oh, okay. This is just going to replace it. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, Eric, and we'll, we'll need to do it more frequently than two years next time, but it sounds like you're going to have a lot more to discuss within at least the next year. So look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. All right, thanks so much, Tom. Bye-bye.